This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. There's been lots of discussion about the lawsuits that are challenging Senate Bill 76, which was the 2021 Florida Legislature's Insurance Consumer Protection Bill, designed to rebalance Florida's litigation environment and protect consumers from unscrupulous actors who are preying on unsuspecting homeowners. The law is being challenged in federal court, as many of you have seen, and there are two outstanding lawsuits so far. The first one was filed within days of Governor Ron DeSantis's signature on the legislation in June, um, and it challenges Section 1 of Senate Bill 76, which puts boundaries around door-to-door solicitation. Section 1 was designed in many of the committee hearings that I sat in and the testimony that I listened to. It was designed to stop the practice of solicitors incentivizing homeowners to sign contracts for roof replacements that should not have become insurance claims, such as normal wear and tear of a roof. As we all know, insurance policies are not designed to pay for the hot and wear and tear that Florida's climate can hurt a roof, shingles, and make them very brittle and, frankly, need replacing. So what we're seeing is that neighborhood canvassers, they walk through neighborhoods, they see a roof with wear and tear, and they will knock on the door and convince a homeowner that an insurance company should pay for the new roof when, in fact, this type of practice means that we're all paying for that new roof. Chief U.S. District Court Judge Mark Walker, uh, he's here in Tallahassee in July, granted a temporary injunction preventing the enforcement of Section 1 solicitation provisions. The second lawsuit, filed not long after the first one, challenges the entire bill and is an attempt to shut down the good consumer protections, in my opinion, that this good law provides. Joining us today on the Florida Insurance Roundup to delve into these lawsuits and whether or not they have merit or just actually the perspective of a very good friend and colleague of mine, Jose Pagan. He's a partner with Walton, Lantaff, Schroeder, and Carson Law Firm based out of their Tallahassee office. He is an insurance defense lawyer with over 25 years in the insurance industry and Jose and I served together in what was then the Department of Insurance, and he was the director of the Miami office, and we went through Hurricane Andrew together when there were no cell phones and no computers, and it was all yellow notepads and pencils. And we got to oversee a lot of insurance consumer protection programs together. He also has immense experience as a regulator in the insurance fraud arena and served in the insurance fraud division, which is you know, now contributing to his great success as one of Florida's leading insurance defense lawyers. So welcome, Jose. Thank you very much, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me today. And um, this is a very interesting topic, and one actually that uh, we can trace back to those early days when we were regulating in the wake of Hurricane Andrew. Um, The issues that are presenting the marketplace today are issues that we struggled with and and dealt with as a department uh, as early as 1992 when we were working in the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew and and thereafter. Uh, Initially, following Hurricane Andrew, 
one of the big issues affecting the insurance industry at that point was simply the availability of insurance coverage. Uh, shortly thereafter, we saw other issues like the 2004-2005 hurricane seasons, which further restricted um, the availability of coverage and implicated also the pricing. Um, thereafter, though, we have had other issues, including the ones that we're dealing with here today uh, regarding the pricing and issues that are really inflating or uh, advancing the rate of increase uh, of insurance premiums statewide. We saw something similar happen um, around the time when the sinkhole litigation was at its peak and the legislature at that point um, interceded as well in an effort to try to stabilize the marketplace and to bring down some of the double digit rate increases we had at the time. Now what we're seeing is something similar and it is unfortunately driving the rate, the premium rates up again, which is why the legislature stepped in at this point to try to mitigate uh, some of the double digit increases that, that are coming forward, not because of particularly hurricane claims, but actually because of um, some of the abuses on the litigation uh, front that are exactly what SB 76 were meant to address. So um, I'm happy to be here, happy to have this discussion, and hopefully we can uh, educate some of the folks who are not working on a day-to-day -day basis in our industry as to some of the cost drivers and, and how hopefully to uh, mitigate those cost drivers to make insurance both affordable and more available in the state of Florida. Thank you so much for that intro, Jose. And that leads nicely into, you know, what I believe that Senate bill's purpose was, and that was to restore, rebalance, revitalize, if you will, uh, the insurance industry for all of its policyholders to stop these premium increases and, and protect consumers for what appears to be out-of-control litigation, you know, uh, solicitations, high-pressure sales, and that kind of thing. The, the cases that, that we ha have, uh, that we'll be talking about here momentarily, are specifically um, relegated to two issues that have arisen, and it's, it's really just a small segment of the industry that is um, challenging those. Um, I will let me take a step back, though, if I could, with regard to um, Hurricane Andrew, because if you recall, during Hurricane Andrew, the department realized that due to the nature and the amount, nature of the damage and the amount of claims um, that were in the affected area, that if even a small percentage went to litigation that the courts would be backlogged. And that's really the infancy or where the mediation program uh, for property claims began because we realized that even small issues could multiply rather quickly and clog the courts. And the mediation program proved to be a huge success, mm -hmm. so much uh, so that the legislature incorporated that into the standard protocol for handling property insurance claims. Now, fast forward to where we are today, um, while those programs still exist, 
to try to resolve the cases pre-litigation without the need for having to uh, litigate the cases, a lot of times the, the, I'll call it the cottage industry because it really is a very small segment of the legal environment as well as, you know, some of the contractors and some of the public adjusters that are really abusing the system. If you look at the reports um, from citizens and from the Department of Financial Services prior to the enactment of, uh, of this law, it appears that approximately 76% of all the property insurance litigation in the country, this is not just in Florida, but in the country, is here in Florida. And moreover, if you look at some of the information that was provided specifically by citizens, it's really only a handful of, of law firms that was generating a majority of all of those lawsuits. So as you mentioned, there are good attorneys out there, there are good public adjusters out there, and there are good contractors out there. However, uh, for that small group that has been abusing the system, unfortunately, these uh, measures had to be taken in order to stabilize the marketplace and hopefully to end the abusive litigation that is, is going on because those are the cost drivers that ultimately are generating the premium increases for all Floridians here in this, uh, this marketplace. You know, when you look at the first lawsuit that was filed that challenges the solicitation piece, you know, I just talk to senior citizens a lot, and it just appears that these activities occur. I was reading on the Village's uh, website the other day, and they've got an anti-solicitation provision that's the largest senior citizen community in our country, and yet there were people complaining about people knocking on their door offering free roofs. So... What do you think about the, the first lawsuit uh, with the plaintiff suing the Department of Business and Professional Regulation? And what happened with that lawsuit? And what do you think Judge Walker may have been thinking? Well, in, in that particular lawsuit, um, and, and Judge Walker is a fine judge. Um, uh, he's very methodical in the way that he reviewed the issues. But what was really being challenged there was not the state's ability to um, address the fraud and abuse, but rather one specific and very narrow issue that arose, which was the advertising provision. Uh, within SB 76, there was an attempt to ameliorate some of the advertisement that some of the bad actors were uh, employing in an effort to either a refer a case over to a uh, public adjuster that they were uh, working with on these particular cases, or b to generate you know an assignment of benefits that would allow them to work on you know the uh, on on whether it's a roof or the the home in general for questionable claims. So the the effort basically was for the legislature to attempt to curb that behavior. And Judge Walker's um, assessment, at least on the preliminary injunction side of it, looked at it in terms of commercial speech. As we know, you know, speech is protected by the First Amendment. And the issue with commercial speech is if there is an attempt by the government to curb 
commercial speech. Uh, it is not a strict scrutiny test, but, but it is an intermediate scrutiny test. So with the regulation of commercial speech, the test has four different parts to it. And the first one would be dispositive, and it's whether the speech is false, misleading, or concerns unlawful activity. Because the um, SB 76 was literally focused on just the advertising portion of it, and specifically the advertising portion of it related to public adjusters, the judge reviewed the types of advertising that would be utilized uh, by the company who filed the suit and found that the speech itself was not false or misleading. So at that point, he continued with the other four provisions of the test. The second test at that point is whether the government interest is substantial. And Judge Walker obviously came to the conclusion that it was. Um, obviously, trying to attempt uh, to curtail fraud or abuse on the system uh, is a substantial governmental interest. And Judge Walker agreed with that. So he moved on to the third test for the intermediate scrutiny, which uh, implicates whether the regulation directly advances the asserted interest. And here's where the judge questioned um, whether the regulation, and again, we're only talking about the advertising provisions, not any of the other uh, regulatory provisions under Chapter 489. But that's where he, he had a, a divergence and he said, well, I'm not sure if the regulation directly advances the asserted interest. And the reason he came to that conclusion was because he also addressed the fourth and final test, which indicates that, you know, they're asking whether the governmental interest can be served just as well as in this legislation by other lim more limited restrictions on the commercial speech. Since he came to the conclusion that there are other more limited restrictions that could be provided to address the issues covered by SB 76, he then questioned whether the regulation directly advanced the asserted interest. And because the two last prongs of the test were questioned by him, he was able to reach the conclusion that it was an infringement upon commercial speech and enjoined only those provisions related to advertising uh, with, within SB 76. Now, the other portions of the statute remain intact, and um, clearly uh, Judge Walker indicated that there was a significant government interest in attempting to address fraud and abuse in, in litigation. So... I also read Judge Walker's ruling. He's an incredible writer and, uh, you know, gave us, gave a, everyone who was reading it uh, a lot of food for thought. So that is great perspective about that Section 1 case. I don't want to assume that everybody listening uh, knows exactly what Section 1 is of Senate Bill 76. So I'm just going to take a quick second to read uh, just a couple sentences of it. It says that contractors or unlicensed persons acting on their behalf may not solicit or incentivize a residential property owner to file a roof damage insurance claim 
the section of the law also establishes that a public adjuster, a public adjuster apprentice, or unlicensed person acting on their behalf may not incentivize a residential property owner to file a roof insurance, a roof damage insurance claim. So, and there's a there's an up to ten thousand dollar fine for violations of this. So, and I would never want to be guilty of interpreting legislative intent. You know, they have their own reasons for doing things, but it's pretty clear to me that the legislature was trying to stop just some of the high-pressure sales tactics that we see every day, read about, you know, on social media and experience in our own neighborhoods. Every time I have this conversation with, you know, someone at Publix or at a dinner party or wherever I am, oh, yeah, they came to my door, and then you know the rest of the story. So I'll move on from there, though. Thank you again, Jose, for helping us through the Section 1 challenge. And then we have the second lawsuit uh, that claims that the law impinges not only on protected free speech, but it interferes with contract law and commerce and due process. How does this all fit in, Jose, the second lawsuit? Well, I think the second lawsuit is is a further attempt to just um, set aside the entire SB 76. Um, the the issue, though, with the, the second lawsuit with the, um, not the as applied, but as the um, entire challenge to the statute, to the constitutionality of the statute, misses the mark when it comes to the issues that I believe the legislature was trying to address. Now, there is nothing new in the legislation about regulating whether it is the contracting industry under Chapter 428 or the insurance uh, industry under Chapter 626. That has been the case for decades. There, I don't think there's any substantial or real um, issue with regard to the regulation of either of the two industries. The crux of this matter is where the two meet and commingle and separating the actions that are allowed to be taken by a contractor as opposed to the actions that are allowed to be taken by an insurance adjuster. And again, dating back as far as in the early 90s during Hurricane Andrew and thereafter, the law was very well um, defined and everyone knew or understood that you could act as a contractor you could act as a public adjuster, but unless you were licensed in both, you could not act as both a contractor and a public adjuster. I think because of some of the issues that have arisen in those 20 plus years since Hurricane Andrew, some of those lines became a little blurred and the legislature subsequently took action to clarify once again, again, I don't believe substantively that there is a change in the regulation indicating if you are a licensed uh, adjuster, then you can adjust claims. If you are a licensed contractor, then you can build or rebuild homes. But um, the same way that a public adjuster who is not a contractor can't rebuild a home, a contractor who is not a public adjuster cannot make interpretations or otherwise advise an insured as to the contractual issues with insurance unless they're licensed. And again, that hasn't changed substantially at all 
in the 20 plus years um, since Hurricane Andrew. The issue is that the legislature, because of some of the issues that arose, and especially some of the issues that arose as well with unlicensed personnel, um, had to make that explicitly clear so that everybody working in the industry understands that if you want to uh, to do both, then you have to be licensed as both. Otherwise, you can only perform those actions within your licensure. Do you believe as I do? I used, you know, I have no life, so I read statutes pretty <laughs> regularly. And, you know, I often, I call it the good book, and I often go back to reading statutes that are on the books now uh, when I'm contemplating you know, how to either help consumers or help my clients. And I read carefully prior to Senate Bill 76, and in my humble opinion, I thought that the laws were pretty clear to give both DBPR and the Department of Financial Services the tools they needed to pursue some unscrupulous activity. Um, I just feel like Senate Bill 76 clarified that, and I think that's what you are saying since you've been around so long and watched the statutes evolve. In fact, I think one of the arguments is that the Assignment of Benefits Bill, um, House Bill 7065, that passed a couple of years ago, took care of everything, and I don't think it does. You've heard testimony from Barry Gilway, uh, the leader of Citizens Property Insurance in Public Settings, indicating that it was not the be-all, cure-all. So... What are your thoughts about maybe what needs to be, quote, cleaned up, or what should we be thinking about in strengthening uh, the either existing statutes or Senate Bill 76 um, so that we don't have this bickering back and forth uh, with those that are regulated? Frankly, those that I speak to that are regulated, contractors, public adjusters, they want to do everything they can to clean up their industries, and they don't like it when they read you know, that some senior citizen's been taken advantage of because it gives their entire industry a bad name. So if you were king for a day, what do you think might be the best uh, path forward? Well, I, I wholeheartedly agree that the majority of the industry, whether it's the contractors or whether it's the, the public adjusters and the attorneys who are doing it the, the right way are, are upset with um, some of the issues because, and we're proponents of uh, the the reforms that are taking place right now, because uh, there were so many arguments in the gray area. I know plenty of attorneys on both sides of the aisle who were very, very adamant that some of the abuses that were ongoing was not helping them or their clients as well. So I, I think that the majority of the industry is aligned, regardless of whether it's on the insurance company's side or on the private attorneys, the plaintiff's attorneys, and the contractors and the public adjusters who service them. I think that the reform is necessary because a fair reading of the statute seems to be clear that all of this unlawful activity is unlawful. Um, however, there have been so many different actions either taken by the courts or not taken by the regulating entities that have allowed questions to arise, which is why I think some of these regulatory, as I say, I think they're clarifications as well, but I think that the regulatory clarifications were absolutely necessary to announce to the, the respective industries, this is improper or this is proper. Now, in terms of 
cleaning things up. I, I think that the AOB reforms were intended to clarify it as well. And if you go back to the AOB statute, there is a provision within the AOB statute that said, notwithstanding the fact that an assignee can be assigned a claim, that does not allow them to handle a claim unless they're licensed as a public adjuster. So I think the legislature has tried to be very clear and very precise. A contractor can present estimates as to the damage. They can make um, recommendations as to the pricing. They can make uh, recommendations as to the scope of what the repairs that are needed as. But a contractor, unless they're licensed as a public adjuster, should not be delving into the issues that a licensed public adjuster would be handling, such as coverage, issues of coverage, issues of claims handling, what is or isn't covered uh, under the policy, and things of that nature. So there has to be a clear distinction or a delineation between the two. And at present, because there's been a blurring of those lines, I think the legislature did come in and, and clarify those. I think they did too. And as we continue these discussions, and this won't be our last time visiting, Jose, one of the big sticking points and that I want you to think about as well is that notice of intent to litigate, which was to give 10 days notice to an insurance company if there was going to be a lawsuit filed. Previous to that, you know, just lawsuits would be filed and they'd wind up in the inboxes of the insurance companies. And when that 10-day pre-suit notice is filed, it triggers some very good negotiation discussions that help consumers. In fact, I've talked to some plaintiff law firms who are complying with the law and filing those notices and saying, man, I'm getting these cases settled. It just seems to be the, the ticket, if you will, to help the conversations. Because sometimes when you're in adversarial situations, you know, things don't start, conversations just don't occur like they should. There are those plaintiff lawyers who don't believe that that, that the particular law applies for all cases after July 1, and there's a bunch of discussion and court cases, et cetera, going on about that. But what are your thoughts, and you know, we'll use this kind of as bringing this discussion in for a landing, about that notice of intent to litigate and what you're seeing in the marketplace? The bill is still in its infancy, and um, most of the attorneys and the carriers are certainly utilizing the notice of intent provision in an effort to try to get to a quick resolution uh, rather than having to litigate um, these cases to the nth degree. Um, That is, I think, most beneficial for not only the policyholders, but all of the other stakeholders as well. The portion of the cases that usually come up and and need some additional assistance to be resolved. In my humble view, and from what I have seen, are cases where, for some reason, there's a communication breakdown between whether it's the insured or their, their representative and the carrier. So having this opportunity to have another person from the insurance company take a look and really Um, sit down with the information and with the other side, uh, with the uh, insured or their representative, really allows another fresh perspective or fresh look at that claim and an opportunity to resolve the case. I think that the 
uh, attorneys who are working with their insureds and their insureds in, in their clients' best interests are glad that there is another mechanism to allow them to try to uh, resolve the case and pair that with the um, with the uh, continuing ability for the carrier or the policyholder to ask for mediation at that point and actually speak to a representative of the company, I think is very important and very powerful in that generally that person who is coming in at that stage of the game before the matter is litigated has an opportunity to sit down and discuss the matter, hopefully in a, a reasonable fashion and resolve the claim. And the the overarching issue here is obviously the majority of the carriers that are working out there want to make sure that they are paying the claim, uh, but they're paying the claim according to the terms and, and the conditions of the policy and are paying it adequately, which means they're not underpaying it, but they're not overpaying it either. And that's important because anytime that a claim does get overpaid, that affects the, the is, premiums yes. that are charged as against all of us all of us absolutely and 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 one other thought too is and didn't mean to cut you off but if if we can collectively think about keeping the consumer first insurance companies contractors defense lawyers plaintiff lawyers consumer advocates everything seems to fall in place doesn't it jose it all falls in place it it does and it's a shame that you know we have a small percentage of of the industry that is really um, driving all of these issues to the forefront, and you know, when when we were in the regulating body, um, one of the first questions we would ask whenever we were contemplating any new legislation is, how far do we have to go to protect the citizens of the state Absolutely. of Florida? Yes, and. And the second question was whether the, the regulation was necessary or not. Unfortunately, we've come to that point where this has become such a crisis that it is necessary, even though there were efforts to try and allow the marketplace um, sort of to correct itself over the long run. It just it didn't work, which is why the legislature has interceded and has added some of these additional Measures. Yes. Correct. Well, this will not be our last conversation. I know that you and many of us that come from that consumer perspective uh, will be following this closely. You know, our legislature starts January of 2022. We have committee meetings this week, next week, the first week of November. Um, there is no harm in you picking up the phone and calling your local representative, your your Florida senator. Um, talking to their staff, telling them what it's like to you know live a day in the life of either being a claims adjuster or an insurance company executive or whatever you do, you know it's all about us sharing what we do every day. And, and with that, I just really want to thank you, Jose. Jose Pagan was on our podcast today, just an incredible uh, force of nature, if you will, works with Walton Lantaff, Schroeder and Carson, uh, their law firm. He's here in Tallahassee. I see him often and I just can't thank you enough for being with us today, Jose. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. I appreciate it. And um, if I could add one other thing, I think one of one of the biggest issues that we really have to focus on is not not only for all of us 
who live here in the state of Florida, but for all of the, the insurance companies as well, the insurance companies have to be able to charge a premium to stay afloat and be able to pay those claims at the end of the day, especially, you know, if there is a storm, which Florida is prone to get um, from time to time. The problem that we face, though, is because of the small amount of participants who are abusing the system are creating such high premium increases that affordability becomes huge. And like we had discussed previously, that's especially acute for senior citizens who are living on a fixed income and for others who are not able to overcome those premium increases as significant as they are. So when we are talking about um, double digit premium increases year over year, that means that in a very short amount of time, we're doubling. Yes. Sometimes tripling yep. the premiums for your home. And know this too, Jose, I've heard Commissioner Altmaier testify in committee. He has to grant these rate increases because it could become a matter of solvency so that the insurance company can keep their promises to all their policyholders. So you're absolutely on the right track. This isn't about litigation. This isn't about solicitation. This isn't about regulation. This is about what it's doing to the hardworking Floridians in this state that's making their premiums go up with everything else, groceries right. and everything else they're facing. So thank you again. You will see a link in our uh, show notes to Senate Bill 76 and all the major reform provisions um, and to both of the lawsuits that Jose and I've talked about today. And we just will summarize the conversation so you don't have to take any notes or think about it. It'll help you kind of like a cliff note. And we also want you to like our podcast and share it with others and, you know, your friends on social media, even every platform that you work through and see. It just helps spread the word. And, of course, we want to hear from you. I love to talk to people that listen to our podcast and get your perspective. We'd like to hear your experience with insurance claims or the court system and any suggestions that we can make this law better or make our podcast better or more, you know, you're more than welcome. And Call us and leave us a message if you can't if we you can't get to us by email or other means. Our phone number is 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002. Or you can certainly send me an email to Lisa Miller at lisamillerassociates.com. And, and that's it for this show. I'm grateful for you taking the time to listen to it. This is our uh, Florida Insurance Roundup, and we thank you for being a part of it. And, and remember, at Lisa Miller and Associates, we have a passion for policy and client success. I'm Lisa Miller. Until next time, stay safe. This has been Lisa Miller and Associates Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.